Welcome to the Good Money Habits podcast, where we marry financial education with tips from the experts on how to develop good money habits. Knowing what your options are around your finances is one thing, how to translate the knowledge into action for results is quite another. We're all about helping others take steps to gain financial stability, to live a better life. This podcast is brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. It is important to understand that today's episode is of general nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situations or needs and may not be appropriate for you. Hello and a warm welcome back to our listeners. When I woke up this morning, I was really excited to get out of bed because there's been quite a lot of worrisome news in the world with the floods in New South Wales, with what's going on in the world with Europe and Ukraine. So it was just such a nice feeling to know that I was going to be doing something positive today. Today we're going to be exploring the world of emotional intelligence and I'm absolutely delighted to be here with Amy Jacobson who's an emotional intelligence and human behaviour expert and author of Emotional Intelligence, A Simple and Actionable Guide to Increasing Performance, Engagement and Ownership. Hi Amy and welcome to Good Money Habits. Thank you so much Julia. I'm absolutely pumped to be here and I think bringing the topics of EI and finance together is just pure brilliance. I couldn't agree with you more and there's a lot to get through. Um, I've actually just finished reading your book I must admit and we were just talking beforehand and as I said I was a bit embarrassed to admit I've actually scribbled all over it and (laughs) highlighted different bits but I guess that's maybe a good sign so I hope I haven't offended you by doing that. I love I love to see a book that's dog-eared and a little bit dirty and I think I was actually saying to my publisher next time when we do the reprint I'm actually going to include some worksheets in it and some space for people to take notes. Oh that's such a great idea. I I just know I'm going to be referring back to it for weeks and months to come and for those of you listening I would highly recommend grabbing a copy of it and congratulations by the way it's it's a fabulous book. Thank you. So I thought I would kick off by posing a question for the listeners to ponder over. Have you ever decided to set a new goal or a resolution in your life to find out that ultimately you self-sabotage but you can't quite figure out why? Throughout this podcast series, we've been exploring saving, investing and finances from lots of different angles, but the primary focus on the educational side has been quite fundamental as a building block to build your confidences around your confidence around money. But knowing what to do is just one component, but it's really not enough to move the needle. So the very reason this podcast is called Good Money Habits is because it's when you can establish better habits around money that we start to witness real change. So to do this, I believe we first need to explore the emotional drivers that influence how we feel about money. Mm -hmm. You know, why we feel that way, why it actually matters, and then how do we seek to increase our emotional intelligence to help us affect positive change. So Amy, I've known for quite some time that finding the right expert for this particular topic, if you like, to navigate us through it safely was never going to be easy. So I felt a little bit like I'd won lotto when Adam (laughs) Smith contacted me, who I interviewed last time, um, and suggested that you and I should meet. And indeed, he was absolutely right. And it was such a relief. Um, I'd coincidentally been following you on socials anyway. um, And when we did catch up, I felt like we could talk underwater all day. (laughs) 
day. Um, and it just felt to me like I knew this puzzle would now fall into place. So I understand how busy you are. Time is valuable. This is a community project. And if I can just genuinely thank you for your time and willingness to get involved, really do appreciate that. Thank you, Julia. I am never, ever too busy, especially for things like this. Thank you. And uh, what I also discovered was that you... Uh, previously worked in financial services yourself and I suspect that's where the connection with Adam Smith came in. Can you share then how you be, how you pivoted towards emotional intelligence and, and becoming a behaviour specialist and author? Yeah, fantastic. So I actually spent, uh, I spent 19 years in the insurance industry, 16 of those were in life insurance and, um, and I always like to say, I literally just had a conversation before this, I love life insurance and and I think there are very few people in this world that purposely go out and say, I'm going to go into life insurance or I'm going to go into the financial (laughs) services industry. I fell into it like many people, but um, my love for life insurance came from the human element of it. And, And I think that's what brings us together today, Julia, is that when people are looking for financial advice, whether it's insurance, whether it's investment, any part of finance, their emotions are on a high level. They are usually experiencing intense emotions because they want that feeling of security. They want to know that everything is going to be okay. They want to know that if the worst thing possible happens, that they're going to be okay. I've and got a safety net under me and my family is right. going to be able to continue on at least financially exactly. in the way we did before. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. So I loved my time in insurance for the reason of really connecting with people in emotional states and, and seeing the difference that simply by putting that security with them gave them in how they actually moved forward. Now, the longer I spend in the life insurance industry, the more I realised that it was the people that fascinated me so much. Mm-hmm. And I think in any organisation, any industry out there, we can get so caught up on the bottom line or on the products, on our competitors. And and we know that, you know, you can come out with the most amazing new product and within six months, all of your competitors will have that same product. But the difference between successful organisations and the difference between successful people is their emotional intelligence. And I think we've known for a long time, you know, that that people make such a difference to organisations, but it's understanding it's not just people, it is their emotional intelligence, how they understand what makes them tick, but also their ability to read other people and understand what makes other people tick. So... It's a foundation for me of discovering yeah. just how much more I wanted to dig deeper into people and their minds. So it was quite an organic, um, natural transition for you by the sounds of it. And that's the best way, isn't it? Oh, when- absolutely. And I think, you know, even before life insurance, I was fascinated with the mind and psychology and, and probably more the criminal side. Uh, but life insurance really gave me the foundations of seeing people in that emotional state and how well they controlled that emotional state could change the outcome. Indeed, and you're obviously talking my language. So <laughs> I love that. And when, when we caught up, um, we talked about that interconnection that you're touching on between finances and the emotional intelligence side. So things like, what was money like in your home growing up? Mm. Money and control, yep. you know, shame around money, relationships mm-hmm. and money. I know that's quite heavy, some of those areas, but they're important things to explore in my view. So I I suggest we dive straight in because there's quite a lot to do. So on what 
given what you've just touched on, do you think there is a tendency to underestimate that connection between emotional intelligence and money? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that, uh, you know, we're in a world where money is a key driver of what we can have, what we choose to do with our money. But the foundations and our relationship with money as we're coming through those earlier years will put an an even bigger emphasis Mm. on the money factor or it will pull it back. And I think that as we're going through, especially our teenage years, which is probably the most impactful time where we're really starting to question our beliefs and our values that we may have had as younger children, we start to look at the fact and and, and we we start to put that importance and that emphasis on money. And and look, for some people, it, it may be that you grew up in a household where money was never an issue. Like it was just, it mm. was, you know, it was, a, it was a transactional mm. thing, you mm. know, yes, it was there, but you never had to think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for people like that, their reliance on money is probably less because it's always been there and mm-hmm. there isn't really a fear attached to it as mm-hmm. such. There is more of an assumption where people who grew up in a household with maybe not as much money and especially if a lack of money they felt like it limited them in what they were able to do or they saw stress coming out of their parents or the family mm-hmm. household, then what we do then is we attach the importance of money to also importance of happiness and success. And that's where the danger starts to come in that yeah. as we go into our adulthood, whatever relationship we have with money will actually guide our decisions, our beliefs, our values. It'll guide the risks that we take in our careers. It will guide the relationships that we have with our partners and with our family moving on because it it depends whether money and finance is actually our number one driver or whether our purpose becomes our number one driver and money supports us on that path. And I want to touch on that a little bit later on, the success and happiness and the purpose side of it because Mm. I think that is so important to share with people. But you've touched on, I guess, the uh, concept of, you know, what was money like in your home growing up and how that influences the way you are with money and how you feel about money as you get older. But when you get into a relationship, I guess it would be unlikely that you'd have exactly the same, you know, uh, background there. So do you have any sort of thoughts or advice for, for couples coming together who might have really different experiences and fears or, or not around yeah. money? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, you're absolutely right, Julia, when people come together, there is a good chance that their relationship with money could potentially be a little bit different. And if we have a look at, uh, you know, some of the really challenging communication things around marriage and some of the reasons for divorce, a lot of it actually comes back to money. And It's it, the number one cause of divorce. There we mm. go. And, mm. and it's those arguments. And, and I think when we look at any disagreement, if I take it back to the mind, when we look at any disagreement that occurs between two people, mm. generally what is happening is there is a difference in beliefs. And that is what's causing that conflict. Now, when we see people going into relationships these days, there's a few things that I see kind of around that money relationship. And and that first one is... You know, so many of us have that need to feel independent these days. Mm. So we're seeing a lot of people come through that, you know, that want to keep things separate because I need to show that I'm independent and I've got my own security in there. Um, And therefore, I want to keep my finances separate and I want to see my finances are kind of a display of my worthiness and and what I've achieved in life and and my success measure is on me that I'm not relying on somebody else and you can also have people coming into a relationship with money uh, in a part in, in a 
in a marriage or in any kind of relationship where they are so driven by that success and that need to succeed that money becomes the be all and end all and it puts that pressure on relationships because they're never going to have enough money. So that means that they need to Mm. keep on climbing that career ladder. They need to work harder. They need to be away from the people that they love and away from the home so much more because Mm. they are so driven by the fact that money is success. So it plays a lot of of different roles in a marriage. Mm. Um, But I think the lack of communication and the lack of having a quality conversation around what does money mean to you and what does it mean to me and how will we align our beliefs about money so we can make this work. What a fabulous um, suggestion as a, as a good place to start there. Mm-hmm. And thinking about this, the younger generation, which you've sort of touched on where there's that perhaps a stronger drive to be independent uh, with money mm-hmm. and perhaps keep money separate in the household. The other side of it is we often do see in relationships where one person may take on more of the primary role yeah. um, of handling finances or, or completely take control of that role. And that can be for lots of different reasons. It can be traditional, cultural, it could be the way it was for them growing up. It could be that one's more interested in money than the other. It could simply be a division of duties. I know as a mm. mum, you'll relate to this. When you're busy with kids, it's a function of how are we just going to survive this? And, right. and sometimes those patterns continue on mm-hmm. um, over time. It just becomes the roles that you tend to take on. Um, so I'm curious about your views on who manages you know, the money in a relationship and does not matter? Look, I think that it's going to be different for every relationship. Uh, I, I think that money, like everything else in a relationship, should be something that both people are involved in. Mm. I think as soon as there is any part of our relationship where only one person is dealing with and the other person is oblivious to it or the other person doesn't understand or appreciate it, mm. I think that there's going to be problems that crop up at that point. So I would say... Um, There's nothing wrong with one person taking care of finance, especially, do you know what, we're not all numbers people. That's right. Some people love numbers and they love doing that. Some people feel like it's their role to take care of that and make sure that, you know, that they have that sense of security for their family because they're taking care of the finances. I think the most important bit is agreeing on it and making sure that the role that you're playing, the relationship that both of you have with that money is in agreement, and it doesn't have any emotional role attachment to it. So if you are the the person that's managing the finance, it's not because you're more important in the relationship. It's not because, you know, you were the breadwinner and, you know, the other person should be relying on you. It is simply because you enjoy it or you're better with money yep. and that's okay. So I think it, it's it's fine to have those different roles but make sure they are clearly about managing the money and that there isn't any emotional undertone around, you know, stature or, um, you know, the feeling of being better yes. or being at a higher level than so your partner. Re- really seeing it as a team approach. Yeah, that's um, right. And in a relationship, it will always be that one might take on, you know, more of a prominent role in different areas of different aspects of the household. And th- I, I agree with you. I think you've nailed that. That's spot on. The only thing that um, comes up for me with that is 
sometimes we do find where people haven't been engaged really at all is that unfortunately when life events occur, mm. illness or uh, disability, death, divorce is a really big one here. Yeah. Um, and people can find themselves in a situation where they've got that kind of double load hitting them. So mm. they're dealing with, with the grief and the life event as well as, oh my goodness, this is something I maybe didn't even like in the first place and now yeah. I really feel I've got no choice. So something that I encourage people to do is that as a minimum have sort of a bare bones um, understanding yes. and I'm happy to put that up actually on the show notes what mm. those things are in my view so things like your bank logins and bill paying what do you own how do you own it um, do you owe any money to anybody else do you pay the minimum on your mortgage do you pay extra what are your living costs you know do you actually save do you yeah. spend more than you earn or do you earn more than you you spend um, and then importantly if something would unexpectedly happen do you actually know what would happen? Do you know mm. what would happen to your assets? Do you know if you'd be okay? So I agree with you, but I, I would encourage people to kind of have a bare bones understanding. And that comes back to your life insurance background. So I, I know, know, yeah. I know. It, it does. Uh, a couple of things on that, Julia, I, I know for us, and, and I'm sure you've come across it as well, where we have a kind of a document at home that includes everything, has our passwords from everything from social media through to our Medicare, through yep. to our bank, through to everything, a, a list of all of our assets and our liabilities yep, and things like that. Mm. So I think that is so important for everyone to go in with your will and in with your power of attorney, which yes. I'm a big pusher of as well. <laughs> but I think if, if I look at the EI component as well, if I relate it back to the workplace, it's yep. it's no different than running an organisation and having um, you know, your, your C-suite person who heads up marketing, your C-suite person that heads up finances, your C-suite person that heads up, you know, sales and stuff like that, even though they take care of different areas, it is still their responsibility to understand what happens in the rest of the organisation. And that's that, you know, bringing that C-suite together, whether it's once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is, and providing updates. And and I think that's, that is just a basic human relationship in that even if you're not the person managing the money, as you said, you should have that oversight. And whether it Mm. is a conversation every month, a conversation every three months, every six months to say, hey, where's our finance at? Like, where are we sitting? Where are our goals? It's It comes down to relationships work because of communication, good communication. I agree. And I guess for those listening, they may be thinking, goodness, I don't want to find myself in that situation or this is resonating for me or this is really hitting a nerve. I guess the other side of it is if you've never really been involved previously, um, is that communication with your partner around why you do mm-hmm. want to, because you don't want them to feel offended, thinking that they're doing a bad job or, you know, why are you yeah. suddenly digging into something you've never been interested <laughs> in before? So What's going on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, hang on a minute. Yeah. So I guess that's that's something to just be mindful, I guess, yes, if there's, if there's a, a change in there. So changing tack a little bit, to what degree, you know, do you believe that financial stress is largely hidden in society? And, you know, what drives that? Is it a sense of shame? Look, I think that it's an expectation that we've really put on society. I think in our mind, we see, and I know we're going to touch on that success further, but yes. I, think, I think this touches into it as well. We set these expectations that we are required to do Mm. certain things in life around our finance and around money. And whether it's that's, you know, buying a house and having a mortgage and, you know, having a car and and doing all of these kind of things. 
And because we do that, comparison comes into it as well. Absolutely. And we know comparison is a killer. It mm. is an absolute killer. The minute we start to compare ourselves with other people, shame does come into it. And yeah. it kind of, I guess it's a measure at times of our value that we're putting out there, of a value of, of being a person on this earth. Mm. So the minute that we start to bring, like, Money and finance is no different to any other way in which we compare ourselves, yet money and finance has been created in this world because it is the, it's the vehicle in which we exchange. It is the vehicle in which we live. So it's very normal for us to then compare something like money because every single person understands what it is. They have some of it themselves at some level. And therefore, we are going to compare that person has more money than me. Why do they have more money than me? What do they know that I didn't know? What did they do better than what I did in order to have more money? So that shame comes into it because we start to question the level of money that we have and I guess our, our potential, how we see failures in life that have led to, us to where we are. I was going to are. say that actually, yeah, the failure side of it. I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, I know growing up um, for us, I was fortunate in our, ho- in our household, we did talk about money, mm-hmm. but often it was quite a taboo subject as yeah. well. So, it, you know, it fascinates me even to this day that something that's so fundamental to just being able to have that financial security or stability in your life, those skills... We just don't talk about them. We don't teach them. Anyway, that's for another day. I want to understand <laughs> emotional intelligence. But, but you segued beautifully into this next area that I do want to spend some time on. And that is around society's definition of success. And you've mm. already touched on it. You know, it's often the job title, the pay packet, the car, the house. Yet, as you alluded to, that comparison, we often see people that have everything as well yet are still not happy. Mm-hmm. Have we got it all wrong? I think many of us do, yes. Because as you said, there's a lot of people out there that financially have it all but are unhappy, yet there's some people out there that have very little and are the happiest people we meet. And look, I'm no exception to that. I, I know for me, leaving school and heading into my career, I had to find success as a job title and a pay packet as well. Mm. I had thought that if I reach this level, then yeah, I'm successful. And, uh, you know, it was a real wake up call to me when I did hit that level and hit that pay packet and my life didn't change. Mm. And I really started to question and think, is this it? Like, is this what I've truly worked for all yeah. of my life? And I think because we do put that success measure on there of finance and money, and what I see with so many people is that there will never be enough. Because if we define success based on money, mm-hmm. we will always be searching for more, always be searching for more. And we can end yeah. up looping around and around and around trying to find this, this dopamine hit of success that we get when we get this money and yet you see people who achieve the money and then all of a sudden they're throwing themselves into the next thing because they didn't get the emotional win that they had hung on that. They didn't get the expectation. And it's not until we realise that money is very important in life, absolutely, Mm. but it should not be the number one driver. The number one driver is, is happiness. 
I thought I, you might say that. It's, <laughs> you know what? Like if you yeah. are happy, you are succeeding. And yes, money is there to support you, to mm. be the vehicle in order to make that happen. Yes. And the more control you have over your money, the more understanding you have, the better you are with managing your money. Mm. That will help you with your level of success as happiness. But really, success is happiness. So how do we go about reframing that then in, in order to determine what makes us happy? And you touched on that foundation and the listeners will be familiar with the stones if they've listened to the podcast series that I shared with you, where I think about it as stones that are st- stacked on top of one another and financial security being that base stone. Mm-hmm. And then the other stones laid in other elements of our life. And if when we, we don't feel like we've got that financial stability, then we're probably not sleeping very well or eating the right things or having the motivation to exercise and you get that spiral effect which can then factor into poor health outcomes etc as opposed to the opposite as not seeing it as the success piece but seeing it as an element to getting to that feeling it's a feeling really isn't it at the end of the day well everything that we do in this world is for an emotional feeling like every decision that we make in life everything like Julia we're we're both sitting here at the moment on a chair Mm. a chair was created to satisfy an emotional feeling and that is that comfort feeling it is to take the pressure off standing up it Mm. is to give us that break it is to make us feel a certain way and and every decision we make in our life is around that emotional feeling and and I love the analogy of the stones that you refer to and probably the question that I would ask everybody out there is to really find that success and that happiness we've got to ask the question why you we've got to recognize how we are currently feeling and ask ourselves why am I feeling this way and when we look at our goals that we have in place we ask ourselves as well, why is it so important for me to have that? How will I feel? Because when we start to understand, you know, if we do have this financial goal that we've created of of owning this amazing house or hitting, you know, $500,000 in our bank account or whatever it is, we've got to ask ourselves, why is it so important to us to have that or to reach that level? Mm. And once we start to ask ourselves why, and we understand the driver behind it, then we can work on the true driver. And as you said, you know, there are so many things that that when we don't have our, our money in, in order that it can cause health mm. problems, it can cause so many different divisions in our life. And, and a lot of the time when we do ask ourselves why we feel this way, again, we're not reaching that bottom element, which could be that when we don't have finan- that financial security. Yeah. We're trying to band-aid things as we go. So I think th- this is a it's a very um, it's very roundabout question in that it doesn't matter whether you're asking it about your financial security or whether you're asking it about your career aspirations or whether you're asking it about wherever you're heading, your relationship, your health. If you ask the question why, mm. you will find the true driver of your current emotion. And then and if finance is, if financial security is a true driver, great, focus on that. If it's not, focus on the other area that is. But like those stones, 
your financial security will always play a role in it. It's all interconnected, isn't it? it and is. I and I think that's the thing. We often think of them as being quite separate and we spoke about that as well, but that interconnection is absolutely vital. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot in that, um, getting down to our really getting down to our values and our beliefs and how we feel, you know. And if we achieve certain things in our life, how is that going to make us feel at that point? If we want to get there, I imagine if somebody's going through this exercise, there could be lots of different things they want to do and achieve. But what advice would you have for people who are wanting to, I guess, take those steps to make change to avoid it feeling like overwhelm? So so how do people go about that? So the... the Look, what we need to do is that we've always got a nice big long list, majority of us, of what we would like, where where we would like to head, what we would like to achieve. What it comes down to is really our priorities in life. It's asking ourselves, what is the number one priority right now in my life? And I think we had this conversation too, Julia, in the past around, um, you know, I, I have a lot of people that will speak to me around they've got a full-time job and they've got a you know a hobby business on the side or a passion on the side and they're like I really want to go full-time into that passion and and they have people around them backing them up going yeah do it it's your passion like this is your purpose this is what you should do and when I meet them one of the first questions I ask them is their financial security like how important Mm. is bringing in a pay packet to you right now Mm -hmm. because what happens is we can get so caught up in the desire desires and the wants of what we want to do mm. that all of a sudden our greatest passion our greatest uh, you know hobby project or or what we want to do can become our worst nightmare because all of a sudden it becomes heavily dependent on bringing in a pay packet yeah so all of a sudden it's not enjoyable at all because the number one driver is the finance so coming back to your question about what we can do to me it's understanding what are my priorities right now in life because they're not going to be the same in 12 months time they might not even be the same tomorrow absolutely we've got to ask ourselves the question and say what is the number one priority and if we're in a stage in our life where you know money is a little bit tighter and the kids are young and we're paying off a mortgage and we're paying off a car and and we've got these debt levels then our number one priority is our money in our financial situation where if you fast forward five years down the track or 10 years down the track and all of a sudden your mortgage is paid off, you own your home, you own your car, you're debt free, Mm. the kids are grown up, all of a sudden money may no longer be your priority. Exactly. It'll always be the vehicle in order for you to achieve other things, but your priority now has changed and you can go headfirst into your passion, knowing that the financial security is already there. And I think that's the mistake that we make in that, you know, we hear people say you can't have it all. You can have it all, mm. but when it's your priority, don't try to, you know, make it something that it's not at that time. And and I think one of the easiest things to compare to is the amount of people that I hear say, you know, I'm going to get fit. I'm going to go for a run tomorrow. That's a great example. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to take out a new gym membership. Yeah. And I have this conversation with them and I say, you know what, you're not. You're not going to. And that's okay. You know why? Because it's not a priority for mm. you right now. Mm. Own that. Own the fact that it's not a priority for you right now. Don't blame it on the fact that you don't have enough time or you don't have this to do. Own the fact it's not a priority for you right now. And it might be. It might be in a month's time. It might be in two years' time. It's the same with money. 
Mm. Own where you are at right now and what your priorities are in life. The others will come when they are a priority. And if you ignore those priorities, then your passion projects are going to be pushed further and further away, aren't they? At the exactly. end of the day, that's that's the cycle you'll fall into. Now, when we caught up, you talked about focusing on just a couple of goals and then because each one has sub goals, right? And yes. subsections and yes. and how long does it take? Like if you if you decide um, you know, we've done our budget, we can save, we're gonna pay a bit extra into our mortgage, you know, how long does it take for that to become I want to say almost um, autopilot. Like I think about if I'm honest, um, things that are more habitual, like driving here. Yeah, I don't think I can actually remember driving here. If I'm honest, <laughs> no, because your but conscious mind took over. That's right. Yes, <laughs> yes. So you're absolutely right. I, I think after we get past that step of, of working out our priorities, then we have this really we have this habit as human beings when a thought comes into our mind any kind of idea we, we get this visualization of it and this happens with our goals all the time and when mm. this visualization happens it embeds into our mind and research says that our mind finds it really hard to work out whether it's actually happened already or whether it was just a visualization so what happens is when we set these really exciting goals a lot of them that have to do with money our mind straight away if we don't have it right now and then it feels like it's missing something so it kind of goes into that withdrawal to say but hang on I can see this in here and why don't I have it now Mm. and what that tends to do is send us into a bit of overwhelm which means we try to do everything at once and when we start to do everything at once as you alluded to Julia three or four goals maybe even five goals don't seem like a lot of goals to have But each of those goals has so many sub goals, it's not funny. And when we set ourselves a challenge of delivering on these goals, we get so caught up in the bigger goal, like it's this big elephant, right, that Mm. we need to try and eat in one chunk. And by the way, we don't eat elephants, (laughs) just putting it out there. (laughs) But it's like this huge thing that we need to do in one chunk, Mm. yet we realise that I don't have the time to do that or that's too hard or, you know, and we start to push them back. So I think my best advice for when we're looking at goals is once you decide it truly is a priority, we want to chunk it down Mm. we want to chunk down that goal and realize there are so many sub goals involved in that a nice easy analogy right is that if you decide now that the borders are open that you want to do you know a holiday maybe maybe you're checking out Disney World or you're checking out you know even to go to the east coast if where it's dry hopefully Um, but you know you want to go on a holiday somewhere when we start setting these goals in every holiday, there are sub goals and that is researching and working out, okay, where am I going to go? Uh, and, you know, what options have I got there? What kind of accommodation? How long are we going to go for? Uh, what is the best accommodation to have? What are we going to do when we're there? What are the best things to do? But then you need to research the flights as well. What are my flights options in getting there? And what is the best time to do it? And why are they different prices? And why is there five different airlines to choose between? And then once you've worked that out, you need to work and go, how much money am I going to need for this holiday? Okay, if I, if, if I need, you know, $15,000 for this holiday and I plan to go in six months' time, then how much does that mean I need to save per week Correct. in the Breaking next six down. months mm. to actually do it? And you can see how this one goal or one idea of we're going to go on a holiday to the Sundays mm. or to, to Disney World sounds like a great idea and just seems like one simple goal that you can also add on to becoming 
and exercise freak and changing your diet and doing all of this kind mm. of stuff, when you start to look into it, it becomes overwhelming because there are so many steps within. So this is the part where we really prioritize and say, what is the most important? And then how do we just take one goal? How do we take the, the gray, the confusion, all of those neurons that are running through our mind, excited about all of these goals that we want to achieve? How do we focus on just one and make that path really clear? So my best advice for everyone out there is pick one goal. Now, it's set, we say that 21 days is how long it takes to form a habit. But that's forming a very simple habit, mm -hmm. like 21 days to form a habit like, uh, oh gosh, getting up and going for a walk each morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, 21 days. You should be able to create it within 21 days. But if you wanted to get up and go for a walk every morning, but before you did that or when you got back, add in a meditation to that or add in a green smoothie when you got back or made sure that you had healthy meals to follow that up with, that is going to take longer than 21 days. The minute that your new habit is more complex or has more steps in it, it's going to take you three to four months to really get this going on. I was hoping you'd say that because we've been talking about three months on the podcast and keeping it go. simple. So we're in perfect alignment. <laughs> and you touched on the dopamine effect earlier. Yeah. So I guess, um, is it is it true? I mean, I, I know that I feel this way, but maybe I imagine it, um, that with those sub goals, if you tick them off, it kind of motivates you to keep going. Oh, it absolutely it's, does. It yeah. absolutely does. Dopamine is a chemical within our mind and every time we make progress on something that we see as progress and we get to tick it off we get a dopamine hit and what dopamine does is it actually gives us a boost of motivation so dopamine is a chemical that gives us motivation and when we're lacking in dopamine it can actually lead to feeling anxious so the more things that we can actually chunk down to tick off those dopamine hits mm. the more motivation we have to keep on going now I, this is actually a conversation I had with my sister only a couple of days ago, how you can get so addicted to saving. Indeed. So it's funny how we yeah. can set ourselves a, um, a savings plan to say, do you know what? I want to get $5,000 in my bank account. Mm. And each time you see that money growing and growing and growing, you get a little bit of a, ooh, this yeah. feels good. That's it. And then all of a sudden you hit that 5000 you go, wouldn't it be great? for it to be eight or ten. And you start to believe it. You do. Mm. And then all of a sudden down the track, you're at the point where you're saying, I don't ever want my savings to be any less than $20,000. Like it cannot mm. go under. Mm. And we even become addicted to having that round number in it because that even gives us more of a dopamine hit. So dopamine is a ma and it's an amazing thing and we even see it. Um, I don't, are you a to-do list kind of person, oh, Julia? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a to-do list kind of person and I know that in secret, all of us out there that do to-do lists, sometimes when we do something that's not on our list, we find ourselves adding it onto <laughs> our list just to tick it off. Yeah, caught me. <laughs> yeah. So that that shows us the dopamine hit is yeah. real. And if you can bring that dopamine hit into your finance and your money, yeah. then that will give you the motivation to keep on going. So create those mini goals, create those dopamine hits. Yeah, wonderful. And that dopamine effect really comes back to feelings again, doesn't it, at the end of 
of the day, which is we're circling right back. And the one that always strikes me, a very simple example, when I'm working with clients who want to pay off their mortgage early, um, often they'll share that they feel that by putting an extra $100 or $200 a month, doesn't feel like much, like it's moving the needle. Mm -hmm. But once we jump on a calculator and show them the literally tens of thousands they can save and the years they shave off, it's almost like a visceral response. Like you can just see that wow moment. And once they understand that, their motivation, and I guess it comes back to that prioritisation piece you mm. spoke to, or the you know the carrot. Yeah. And you you said something to me when we caught up, something along the lines of, um, you know, the more we can see that we're going to gain from it, then absolutely, lose. yeah, absolutely. So if for as complex as our brains are, there is a very simple part in our brain that constantly asks, what do I stand to gain from this? What do I stand to lose? Mm. So I've been in that position too, right, where you know I've had advice to say, pay an extra hundred dollars onto your mortgage but if we cannot see what we're gaining off that at, at a level mm. then then our brain starts to question and go well why like mm. why am I doing this like I could use that hundred dollars to spend on something we could mm. go out to dinner another time this week like it, it doesn't really make such a big deal because it's such a delayed gratification kind of goal that's right? exactly right mm. but what those calculators are doing and it's very very clever because it's showing our mind what the future looks like mm. it's showing that if we do this this is what we stand to gain and the minute we see see that and our mind says oh I'm in this because I want to gain that advantage and I know that if I do that that will make me feel like this so the minute we can see what we stand to gain or that carrot and then we relate that to an emotional feeling like how good will it feel if we pay off our mortgage not only five years earlier but also know that we've saved this much money so all of a sudden we attach then to the feeling that we want to achieve and all of a sudden it's a much higher priority and that's the power of it, isn't it? Oh, it is. We could we could talk underwater. I, I really do believe <laughs> that. I'm conscious of time. But I just, I guess, a little bit of a cheeky question to finish off. Um, yep. And that is, are there any other questions that I should be asking you that I haven't? Oh, do you want to know what my favourite cookie is? Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a trick question because I love all cookies. Um, but I would say, what are you asking me that you shouldn't, what haven't you asked me? Look, I would say probably the question that you should ask me is, can being more emotionally intelligent improve your financial state? Great. And my answer is, of course, yes. <laughs> and I think this yeah. takes us back to the beginning of the conversation because I think when when we think about our financial security, we only think about growing our knowledge in finance. And what we're missing is what's actually driving it all deep underneath. So I would encourage everybody out there Emotional intelligence is not just about relationships. It's not just about understanding what makes you tick, what makes other people tick. It's not just about improving your self-awareness and improving you as a person. It is the underlying fundamental core of everything we do as human beings. And money and finance is part of that. So if you want to get better at your finance and about your money, work on your emotional intelligence as well. You nailed it. Thank you. I, I, I just, that is, you know, I, I think that's beautifully said and that's a beautiful way to finish up. So, Amy, 
thank you so much for volunteering your valuable time and your insights. As I said at the start, it was so nice how this connection came about and it feels like this that's how this podcast is sort of evolving organically. Um, you know, I guess there's a little bit of tough love in there for us as well, which yes. is important. You yes. know, we it's nice to hear the good things that make us feel good, but sometimes getting a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. or pushed out of our comfort zone and encouraging us to be really honest with ourselves about our values and our beliefs and how we do feel about things, I think is is really important and it's it's really refreshing to hear your your views and your expertise on that. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I just like to say that this is the first I, I I get to speak on uh, lots of podcasts, which I absolutely love. Yet this is the first one where somebody has brought that connection between EI and money together. And I I think it's brilliant. I really do. And I'd love to see more areas that feel like they're detached from EI to realise that connection. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for having me. And Julia, I think what you're doing on this Money Podcast is so important for everybody out there. And uh, I'm always open to speak to anyone. So if anybody out there has any further questions, feel free to contact me and I'm happy to have a chat. Thank you, Amy. Amazing. And as I said in the beginning, um, have a read of the book. It's absolutely well worth picking up and and committing some time to and enjoying, actually. I've really enjoyed it. I'll put some notes in the show links around the book as well for people to click on to. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and share. And many thanks for sharing your valuable time with us today. Stay safe. That was another episode of Good Money Habits, brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. A reminder that this episode was general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs, and therefore may not be appropriate for you. It is recommended that you seek professional advice before making any significant financial decisions. If you want to find out more, this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or head to www.lighthousecapital.com.au.